welcome. Welcome to Providence Road. Uh, my name is Sam, and uh, my wife Jill and I have been members at Providence Road for the past four and a half years, and apparently if you stick around long enough, they let you preach in the service, so that's pretty cool. If you have a Bible handy, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 6? Uh, Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible handy, we're going to flash the verses up on the PowerPoint uh, behind me, but if you would like to uh, have an old-fashioned Bible... Uh, that you can pick up and read. You're more than welcome to use the pew Bibles in front of you and the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, we would love for you to be able to take that. You can take it home. Uh, the verses that we're going to be looking at today, Galatians 6, uh, are on 567 in those little Bibles in front of you. All right, so this is kind of a unique Sunday. Um, we're in between a sermon series, and uh, it's the Sunday right after Christmas and right before New Year's. Uh, and Sundays like this kind of fascinate me because we have in America this kind of uh, New Year's resolution culture. It's that time of year where we, we make commitments, often public declarations about how we're going to engage in some kind of self-improvement uh, campaign for ourselves. Right? We, uh, we, we make social media announcements about how we're going to eat right or how we're going to exercise more. Uh, news stations run entire stories about the kind of New Year's resolutions that people are making. Fitness gyms around the country are budgeting in light of the fact that January is going to be their best month in terms of memberships that nobody will use. And so we've got this New Year's resolution culture, and it's easy for us, knowing that as the church, to kind of piggyback off of that culture and to say, well, let's make a ser sermon about some kind of a spiritual New Year's resolution. Uh, where we challenge you to, to start getting serious about some kind of uh, some spiritual self-improvement practice, maybe a discipline that we want you to engage in more. I want you to commit to reading your Bible more this year. Uh, maybe reading all the way through the Bible or something like that. That's an, a common one. People get like through the Bible in a year, uh, you know, copies that they're going to go through or some kind of reading plan that they commit to. Or let's commit to uh, praying every day this year. I think those things are fine, but I, I, do kind, I do find those kinds of sermons fascinatingly ironic, uh, given that uh, we spent all of Advent season basically talking about how Jesus had to come here because we couldn't fix up our own lives, and the very next week we say, time to fix up your own life, right? Uh, so let's jump into that. Now, I, I want to give a sermon today about uh, growing spiritually and, and changing in a positive way. But I want to do that in a way that I think is more biblical, uh, that God, the way God wants us to do that, and that is not by uh, improving ourselves, but it is with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, with the gospel that God gives us with his word, and together, in community, helping one another out and serving one another. And so this sermon could actually be a tad bit touchy, which I think is kind of fun and way less boring than the same old New Year's resolution. What we're going to be talking about is uh, confronting one another. So we're going to be talking, this is, I've never heard a sermon on this before, uh, so this was really fun for me exploring this. So we're going to be talking about how do Christians see sin, some kind of uh, way that, that you're behaving, you're acting, what, believing um, uh, uh, a position or some kind of uh, attitude or mindset that I see a brother or sister in Christ holding to that is inconsistent with the gospel, inconsistent with his word, and it is my responsibility as their brother or sister to confront them, to say, that's inconsistent, this needs to change, I will lovingly help you change that, right? I've never heard a sermon about that before, and you're about to hear one now, okay? So, if you would go to uh, Galatians chapter 6, we're actually going to get most of the meat for this sermon out of two verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2, read that with me. 
Paul says, brothers, and uh, it is implied here that sisters are included, okay? So brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you that, that though we are imperfect and we couldn't fix our own lives, you sent Jesus into the world, born of a virgin, uh, lived a perfect life, died in our place so that we could be redeemed. And now that we are redeemed, we're redeemed into a family. And that family comes with obligations. And so uh, one of those obligations happens to be that we will, uh, we will see uh, our lives together and we will uh, lovingly and uh, with a servant and humble heart confront one another where we, where we need to improve, where we, where we see sin in one another's lives. And we will commit to walking with one another through that process of growing in you. And I pray that you would teach us through your word how to do that this morning. We commit the time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're into taking notes, and I would recommend that you do, I, I think it's a good idea. If you're into taking notes, maybe you could grab your kids' like little coloring sheet and turn that over and use the crayons if you don't have a piece of paper. Uh, it's actually going to be really easy to follow this morning. Paul gives us a real simple outline. We're going to look at the, uh, the why we confront. Paul's going to teach us why we confront, who we confront, and how we confront. So why, who, and how. Real simple, real straightforward. So first, let's look at the why we confront the first reason we confront, Paul gives us three reasons why we confront just in this text alone, these two verses. The first reason is that we often don't see the sin in our own lives and we need somebody to point it out. We're blind to that. Look at verse 1. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in some transgression. Now pause on that word caught. Uh, most, transla- most English translations of the Bible have, have caught there. They have the word caught. Some of them change it around a little bit, and I think it shows the valence of this, of this particular word, this Greek word behind that. Uh, the King James has uh, overtaken. Uh, some transla- translations have trapped. Uh, some have overcome. And I think the, the Greek word behind that, as you can tell from kind of the variance in these translations, carries, in, carries the idea of somebody being taken by surprise, caught uh, off guard. It's not like you catch them in the sin, it's that they're caught themselves. They have become trapped, ensnared in some kind of sin. So the kind of sin that Paul is talking about here is not the kind of premeditated sin that somebody is, they know it's wrong, they're plotting it out, they're planning it, they're you know, going to keep on doing it. Uh, that really does come under, I think, what we're talking about. I mean, that, is, that kind of sin could also be included in confrontation. We need to confront that sin too. But what Paul has in mind is the kind of sin where I may not even see it. Right? Like I, am, I, have, I have been overtaken or surprised or caught by this kind of sin in my life. And so the implication there is that God uh, gives us one another so that we can point out the areas that we're blinded to. And this is one of those fascinating situations. I'm a social scientist by trade, uh, teach at OU, and this is uh, kind of my, uh, my area of interest. Is, is, uh, is social science perfectly aligns with what the Bible is teaching on this subject? Because one of the fundamental principles of social psychology is that our brains naturally work against us seeing our own flaws. We, we reflexively, our, our brains are, are wired to see all the flaws in somebody else's group and their own behavior, and yet we unconsciously, our brains work against us being exposed to all the wrong things that we do, the inconsistencies in our life, the ways that we're behaving hypocritically, uh, and so that's perfectly aligned with what Paul is talking about here. This hit home to me recently when I was driving my kids to school. So I, uh, my wife and I have made a commitment to one another, and maybe you guys have done something similar, We've made a commitment to one another that we're not going to text and drive. 
right? It's a, and uh, we shouldn't do it ever, uh, but we've definitely said we're not going to text and drive with kids in the car because we, we don't want to expose our kids to danger because of distracted driving, and so we're, we're just not going to do it. And we've actually enlisted our kids in this effort because we've said, honey, you know, our, our kids, if you see mommy or daddy texting while they're driving, you can, you can tell on them, right? And that's unique because usually my kids know snitches get stitches, but on this particular issue, they're allowed to tattle on mommy and daddy, okay? So... Uh, and, and, and so we don't text and drive. That's the commitment. So I'm driving my kids to work one morning. And, uh, and I've got my, my cell phone on the middle console next to me. And I, uh, I, I, I hear the ding go off. And I know somebody's texted me. And so I just glance down, right? Like I've got my kids in the back. I'm driving. And, uh, and I just glance down. And I see all I can see is that Jill texted me. And there's a bunch of exclamation points there. So we just left the house, and I really don't know what, what she's trying to text me. I just know exclamation points, and Jill's texting me. And, uh, and so did we forget something back at the house that I need to turn around for before I get to school? Is it an emergency? I don't know. It's exclamation points. Maybe I need to read that. And so I pick it up, and I start to read it, and okay, it's not... It's not an emergency. If you've ever texted with my wife, she just really likes exclamation points. Okay, so it was, it was something funny, and I was just going to say, okay, I've got, already got it in my phone, so I just, I've already got it, my phone in my hand. We're pulling up to a light, and so I just figure, okay, I'm going to text my wife back, ha, 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 maybe some suggestive emoji involving fruit, and then we're going to be done, right? So we're going to, uh, so I, I'm, I'm just going to do this real quick and then drive off. Well, I see somebody pull up next to me, and I look over, and it is some college girl uh, I've got my phone. I'm kind of, kind of doing this, just texting Jill back. I've, I, I see this college girl, and she's got both hands, uh, you know, thumbs going on the steering wheel, not even trying to hide it. I mean, at least I'm like, I'm right here, like what you're supposed to do when you're texting and driving. And so she's up here uh, texting both hands, pulling up to the green light, and I immediately forget what I'm doing, right? Like I, I forget what I'm doing at that moment, and I look over, and I'm just disgusted, right? Like, like, we're about to go into a school zone. What are you doing, lady? Like, get off the phone, right? So uh, I, I figure somebody needs to say something. And, and so I'm going to say it. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I roll down my window, and, and I yell at this lady outside the window so she can hear me. I say, get off the phone, Mackenzie. And, uh, and uh, Ryan in the back, my eight-year-old daughter, says, who's Mackenzie? And I, I swear, without breaking eye contact with this girl, I say, they're all Mackenzie, Ryan. And, uh, and so, of course, this girl is like, whatever, and she drives off after she sees that. And then my daughter says, uh, Dad, as the green light turns and we start to go, my daughter says, Dad, aren't you texting right now? And I look down, and I had totally forgotten, and I'm like, ah, I was texting, right? I was, I was, I'm yelling out my window like a psychopath at this girl who is not just doing something I do every now and then. She's doing something I'm doing right then, right? Like, at that moment, I needed my daughter to confront me and my inconsistency. The whole situation was so funny that I spent the rest of the time on my, on my way to school texting Jill about it. It was that funny, okay? <laughs> so we need one another to, to point out the ways that we are inconsistent because sometimes we are blinded to the fact that we are hypocritical, right? Like that I expect uh, certain behavior of others that I don't naturally expect of me. We need one another. So that is reason number one. Uh, second reason is we confront, this is a look, look back at verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The second reason we confront is because we want to restore others to fellowship with God. When we sin, we break fellowship with God, and we want to restore others in our lives, our brothers and sisters, to fellowship with God. Uh, 
Restoring fellowship is always in view. The idea of confronting to restore is always in view every time you see confrontation in the New Testament. You don't have to turn to these places in the Bible. I will show them up on the PowerPoint. But I just want to run through some examples of how we see confrontation always leading to restoration. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus is teaching about confrontation, and he says to his disciples, he says, if your brother sins against you, now pause right there on that against you part. Uh, I don't know why the ESV keeps that. Uh, most of the, the, the oldest and best Greek manuscripts don't have that part against you. I think a scribe added that later. The ESV, by tradition, is kind of keeping that in there, but most of the most newer translations don't keep that. So I don't think it should be in there. So uh, what that does is it broadens it out. It's not just if your brother sins against you, like they have a problem with you and you, they did something to you. It's if they sin, right? Like it just broadens it out. If your brother sins, uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What does he mean by if you gained your brother? You've gained him for yourself? Uh, no, he's saying that you've won them over. You've won them back. You've restored fellowship. If they listen to you, they've repented of their sin and they have become restored to God. James 5 says something similar. James 5, 19 through 20. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James encourages the church at the end of his epistle uh, by saying that when we help someone see the sin in their own lives and to turn back, we're saving them from death and we're helping them to rid that sin of their life. We're saving them from a multitude of sins. All the consequences of those sins in their life and the broken fellowship with God, we're saving them from a multitude of sins, right? It's a good thing. We are restoring them to fellowship. Even when, restoration is in view, even when the way we have to go about it seems harsh. Right? Like even when the consequences are severe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is, is, is talking to the Corinthian church and there's some pretty, pretty bad sin going on. There's some really extreme sexual sin uh, involving incest and prostitution. Paul says it's so bad that even pagans shouldn't do the things that you guys are doing. And the person who's doing it isn't apologetic, not repenting. And so Paul says, you got to kick him out. you got to exercise church discipline. Why? Is it because Paul's being vindictive? Is it because he wants to hurt that person? No, it's with restoration in mind. Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, so this is going to be public, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? It means we're going to expel him. We're going to treat him like he's an unbeliever because that's how he's acting. So we're going to uh, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Again, it's not vindictive. It's not mean-spirited. It's so that this person will come to themselves and say, what am I doing, right? Like, think about what has happened to me. I've been, I've been expelled from my own church because I've refused to repent of this sin. And they'll come to the air of their ways and they'll be restored. So the goal is always restoration. Why is this so important to get? It is because, and listen to this, if you're ever engaging in confrontation, like you, you see somebody in sin and you're confronting them because you want to uh, uh, see this out of their lives, if your motivation is ever anything but their immediate and, and eternal good, you have the wrong motivation. I'll just say that. Your motivation has become corrupted. Biblical confrontation is not about, uh, is not about taking that person down a peg. It's not about arguments for the sake of arguments. 
Uh, it's not about showing how they're wrong and you're right. Uh, it's not about one-upping them. It's not about hurting them back, right? It is always for the sake of restoring them. So reason one is we're often blinded to our sin. Reason two is we want to restore them to fellowship. Uh, that's why we confront. Reason number three, uh, look back at verse uh, two, Galatians 6, 2. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the third reason we confront one another is because we want to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. What is that law? Well, if you read the Gospels, it is, it is to, we are to love one another. That is, the, that is the law. The law of Christ is that we're to love one another. And I love how Paul says it that way because this is a tangible way that we live out this command to love one another. It's not just saying nice things to each other. It's not just encouraging one another with nice notes and, uh, and, and hanging out with one another. It is sometimes by pruning the sin out of one another's life and saying, bro, I love you. And I know you love Jesus, and this is inconsistent with what you say you value. Uh, same with our sisters in Christ, right? And so uh, we need to love one another enough to be honest with one another and say, this has got to stop, you've got to repent of this, and I'll do that with you, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you through uh, uh, repenting of this sin and walking in obedience to the Lord. So what I've just given you is I've given you three reasons that Paul gives in verses 1 to 2. Uh, why we should confront one another. We're blinded to our own sin. Uh, we want to restore one another to fellowship. And we want to uh, bear one another's burdens because that's how we love one another. Imagine a church situation in which none of this is going on. People are not abiding by the reasons that I've just given. What happens? Well, you've got a church where people are walking around blinded by their sin. Uh, you've got a church where uh, people are not, they have broken fellowship with the Lord because they have this sin in their life that they're not repenting of and they're not really, uh, you know, don't even know or maybe don't even realize. And they also, we also have a church where people are not loving each other in a biblical way, where people are being honest and open with one another and engaged with one another about the imperfections in their lives, right? Not in a prideful way, uh, not in a harsh way, but in a way that is honest and loving. Uh, and so we have all kinds of reasons for why we want to confront one another. That's the reasons why. Let's look at who do we confront. Who do we confront? Uh, Paul also includes this in chapter or in, in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Think about the, the reasons we just... Here's, I'll just make the thesis statement of, of what I mean this point. Who should we confront? I, I believe from this passage it should only be Christians uh, whom we know we have a close personal relationship with. So in other words, it's people who know the Lord uh, and it's people that we're not strangers to. It's not somebody that I just kind of an acquaintance kind of relationship. Why do I say that? Well, think about what Paul's just described in verse 1. First, he says that we want to... Uh, restore one another. If somebody is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore that person. You cannot restore somebody to fellowship with God who doesn't have a relationship with God at all. Right? Like that's not my responsibility to, to take somebody who is not a believer, who doesn't love Jesus and doesn't care what Jesus thinks, and tell them why that running stop signs and littering displeases God. They don't care. Why, why, would I, why would I think that they would care about that? I can confront those things as a citizen, but that's not in my capacity as a believer, as a, as a, as a Christian, right? And so it should be Christians because that's the, the people who we are tasked with restoring uh, to the Lord. They got to know Jesus first. But I also think it should be somebody we have a close personal relationship with. Why do I say that? Well, it's because of this language of bearing one another's burdens. I don't think that conveys the idea that we're supposed to like confront somebody and walk away. Say like, hey, here's the sin in your life. Good luck with that. Uh, and now I'm going to walk away like I would do with an acquaintance or somebody I don't care, care about. We care, carry one another's burdens. Bearing one another's burdens, that allows us to fill, fulfill the law of love, to, uh, the law that that's, Jesus says we are to love one another. And so when we do that, I, I think it conveys the idea that I have a relationship with that person and it may take a process. 
right? Like it may take a while. Like me confronting them, restoring them, bearing their burdens is a process. And I think that suggests that we have a relationship with that person. So I think it should be Christians with whom we have a close personal relationship. The opposite of that, I don't think we're tasked with confronting to restore unbelievers uh, or people we don't have a close relationship with. The problem is, I think in the American church, we get this the exact opposite. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Uh, I love diagrams, and so I've given you a little diagram. I hope you like diagrams too. So uh, let's throw those. Di- let's throw the uh, my little two by two square up there, and I'm going to get my little laser pointer out. Okay. So uh, pause right there. So what I have over the top is I have my relationship to this person. We've got unbelievers outside the church, and we've got believers inside the church. On the left side over here, we've got my relationship to their sin. Over here, what I, this is what I call benevolent acceptance. And by that, let me clarify. I don't mean that we're just saying, ah, it's sin, whatever. Like, like my relationship is just kind of passive. Like I, I don't care that they're sinning. It's a problem. That's, sin is bad. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destructive in their life. It's going to be harmful. I just mean that my relationship to that sin as a Christian is, is one where I don't, I'm not charged with confronting them, with changing them. I'm charged with something else. And so my, my benevolent acceptance is knowing that they're sinful, knowing that they make bad decisions, and loving them through that because that's my responsibility. Okay, So benevolent acceptance and then confronting to restore. Here's where I think we get that backwards. So what we end up doing, I think, is we end up practicing, let's go to the next click. We, uh, we end up practicing benevolent acceptance to believers inside the church. We, we basically say like, look, hey, we're all imperfect. Uh, you're my brother and sister. You're like, I know you mess up. I mess up. I'm just going to assume you're going to eventually get this, right? Like, you love Jesus enough, and I don't need to confront that in your life. And so I'm just going to assume that like, hey, this is something that'll click for you eventually. And so we're all just going to ignore the sin in one another's life. Meanwhile, what we end up doing is we end up confronting to restore unbelievers outside the church. And we do this on a little thing called social media. Maybe you heard of it. Okay, so our practice like on, say, Facebook uh, or Twitter or that kind of thing is to get into Twitter fights or Facebook fights with unbelievers who don't know the Lord, who don't really care, and then to confront them on their morality, their politics, uh, their cultural faux pas or the things that we disagree with and say, you should really be more like me. Not knowing that they, they don't know Jesus or not even caring that they don't know Jesus and don't have our values or priorities, right? And I think it should be, and maybe, maybe you know, maybe I should be, uh, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't be unfair about the social media fights, right? Like, because, uh, you know, maybe they could be productive. I think we could all remember those times uh, where you got into a fight with that jerk on Facebook, and by the end of the engagement, they ended up changing their mind. Of course not, because that's never happened, ever. Why do we do it, right? Like, it's so counterproductive. We should do the exact opposite. It's not something that's productive, and it's not something that we're called to do as Christians. What we're called to do is the exact opposite. What I think is the biblical church uh, is I think we should practice... uh, Confronting to, can we get the next click? Confronting to restore believers inside the church, right? Like that's our relationship to their sin. I should be uh, aggressively, not aggressively in a, in a mean way. I just mean like thinking through how can I help my brothers and sisters and how can they help me walk in obedience with the Lord. And for those outside the church, I'm practicing benevolent acceptance. It doesn't mean that I just kind of, you know, uh, wink at their sin and say like, hey, no big deal. But it means to the extent that I, I can, need to confront them in their sin, They need to see that they need forgiveness. They need to see that Jesus offers that forgiveness. Uh, But there's no, I have no business as a Christian uh, going about saying, hey, you non-Christians, you unbelievers, you really need to behave in a Christianly manner uh, when they don't embrace my values and don't see the world the way that I see it. Let me just give you a verse here. I'm going to give you a couple verses just to let you know that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. It's my philosophy on life. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is again talking about this, this uh, person who is sinning sexually and sinning, sinning pretty severely and the Corinthian church is kind of abiding by it. And he says in uh, 1 Corinthians verse 12, he says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Right? What do I have? He asks that question. What, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? He, it, it's not. The implication is that it, it, he has no place judging people outside the church. They're going to live how they want to live. It's their values and their beliefs. And of course, they're contrary to God's will. But it's, it's, it's because they don't love Jesus and they don't know God and have a relationship with him like you and I do. And so what business, what, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And by judge, he doesn't mean going around judging people and thinking you're better than them. He means uh, you can hold people who, who claim to follow Christ, right? You, you claim to follow Christ. Uh, you claim to love Jesus. You claim to want to obey him. I can hold you to that as a Christian. Right? Like if you claim to love Jesus, I can say, look, you, you already said you love Jesus, that you want to follow God with your life. And so I want to help you do that in a consistent way. And what I see right now, it's inconsistent. What you see in my life, I'm being inconsistent. We do that with one another. And so Paul says, we don't judge those outside, we judge those inside, meaning we see the sin in their life and we want to address it. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul doesn't think it's his business to confront the sin of those outside. We should, claim, we should confront those who claim to follow Christ. Okay, so, so far we've looked at why we confront, and we've looked at who we confront, and now we're going to get to the meat of how we do this. And again, in Galatians, Paul teaches us everything I think we know, need to know about moving forward with this. Paul gives us three principles, three principles about how we confront. Look at verse 1. Paul says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So the spirit of gentleness. Now, uh, this, this Greek word gentleness um, is this word proutes, and uh, it's, it's, it's all over the New Testament, but often it's not translated gentleness. Uh, often it's translated by the word meekness, as in, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, and I actually like that translation, but I like meekness better. If you've ever done a word study on meekness, I'd encourage you to do so, because it's really a fascinating word, like how it's used in the, in the New Testament. It conveys the idea of humility, uh, but with strength. Right, like it's controlled strength. That's a good uh, definition of, of meekness. It's not passivity. It's not apologetic. It's not like, oh, it's, 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 it's my problem. I, this is my problem. I'm talking to you about your stuff, but this is my problem, right? Like it's, it's not something that we have to do. So I, I really like the idea of confronting one another in meekness because it's, it's, it's something that we, we convey with humility, not proud, not harsh. We're gentle. And yet it's not something we have to apologize for. If, God, if God's word said it, and this person says they want to live consistently with that, then it means I can, with confidence, say, this is what I see. This is what I see in the scripture. This is what I see in your life, right? And I'm not perfect, right? Like, I, I'm not talking about just you. Like, I, I'm included in this kind of thing, but let's walk together out of this thing, right? And so with meekness, with gentleness, with humility, uh, Paul says we want to confront one another. So we should restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. Second principle. Look at verse, the second half of verse one. Paul says we should watch ourselves lest we also be tempted. Now, what does he mean by this? This is kind of a fascinating thing. It's kind of ambiguous, but he doesn't say how we're going to be tempted. Watch yourself lest you also be tempted. I think Paul could mean one of two things, uh, and either one, either way he means it, the application is the same, so I'm comfortable with a little bit of interpretive ambiguity here. Uh, he could either mean, Paul could mean that I may be in confronting this brother or sister in sin, 
I may be tempted by that particular sin that I'm confronting. So for example, I may be like a recovering alcoholic or a substance abuser, and I'm confronting somebody else who is, who is having a problem with that. And in me walking through that with them, in me talking with them about it, I may feel drawn to that. Like I may feel tempted to engage in that kind of thing that I'm supposed to be helping them out with. Uh, and so Paul might be saying, watch yourself as you get close to this sin in their lives, that, that you're not also tempted with that. That may be one way he means this. Another way he means this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. This idea of, of going about this with wrong motivations. Maybe as I'm confronting this person, a sense of pride starts to well up in me. I start to develop a little bit of arrogance. This is your thing. This is not my thing. Or I start to, it starts to become about an argument. Like, uh, I'm right and you're wrong. And let me just kind of nail you on this and make sure that you know you're wrong. And, and so I lose track of the motivation, the proper motivation of doing this. And so I'm tempted to sin because I get prideful. I forget my own need for forgiveness. And I forget the need to, to, to restore this person in love and gentleness. And so Paul could mean any one of those. Maybe I'm tempted by that particular sin. Maybe I'm tempted to lose sight of why I'm doing this. Either way, what we do when we confront one another is we, at the very least, self-reflectively think about where do I stand in this? Like, how can I make sure that I am not led into temptation myself, either by motivation or by kind of what I'm drawn to, uh, as, I'm, as I'm dealing with this person, as I'm confronting this person in love? All right? So... Uh, we deal with one another in, uh, in a spirit of gentleness. We do it by watching ourselves so that we're not tempted. The third principle. Here we need to go to the, the third principle. I'll just say it and then I'll, we'll go to the verse. The third, third principle is we need to focus on the gospel. And here we need to turn back in Galatians. So if you're in Galatians, go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at an example Paul provides uh, in the middle of chapter 2. And here Paul actually has to confront somebody. So we see how he does it himself. He's confronting Peter. So chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, uh, it says, But when Cephas came to, he's talking about Peter, uh, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Pause right there. Okay, so uh, Paul is saying, Peter, uh, I had to oppose him to his face. I had to confront him because he stood condemned. He was, he was sinning, right? Like he was, he was sinning before God, and I needed to address it uh, personally right there. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James... Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What is he talking about? Well, there's, this has already taken place in the Jerusalem church. Uh, the, the, believing, the leaders in the church have already decided to be a Christian, you don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to follow Jewish customs. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to eat certain things and keep kosher. You just have to believe in Christ. Uh, they've already decided this as a church. It's not ambig ambiguous. Peter knows this, and he actually lives like a Gentile now. Like, he eats all these things that he's not supposed to eat, or as a Jew he's not supposed to, and he eats with Gentiles. But apparently there's this group of, of Jewish Christians, maybe they're not even Christians at all, but Christians who still think you need to be Jewish to be a Christian. And so they come from James, and Peter is either impressed by them or he fears them, and he wants to get on their good side. And so what he does is he starts backing away from the Gentiles and starts acting like the Gentiles are second-class citizens, or they're, they're, they're not real Christians like we are. And so Paul has to confront this. He says, this is, this is hypocrisy, right? Like, this is, this is bad. And in fact, he starts to lead others astray. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? I want, I want you to notice what Paul calls out here, right? You could, you, could, you could pinpoint a lot of the things that Peter is doing wrong. He's kind of being a bigot. Uh, he's being biased towards a certain group. He's being prejudiced. He's being exclusive in a way that the gospel uh, says is, is not consistent, right? Like is, is not true. Paul could have said, you're being bigot, you're being biased, you're being prejudiced, you know, you're being divisive. But what does Paul do? He says, when I saw that they were not acting in step with the truth of the gospel, right? Like that's what he's focused on. That's what we need to be focused on. Paul says, this is inconsistent. What Peter's doing is inconsistent with the gospel. And so he confronts Peter. He says, you're a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile. How could you possibly force uh, Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You know that that's wrong. You know that that's inconsistent with the gospel. When we confront one another, of course, we do it with gentleness. Of course, we do it watching ourselves in humility so that we're not tempted. But what we do is we focus on the gospel. When I'm confronting my brother, if I see a brother in Christ who is uh, not loving their wives uh, well, like not paying attention to her needs, disregarding, talking bad about her, all those kinds of things, I would say my brother, right? Like I, I could say, hey, clean up your act and start treating your wife right. Um, and that would be true. But I want to get to the heart of what's going on here. I want to say my brother, right? Like, the way you're treating your wife and her needs is inconsistent with how Christ loves the church, right? Like that is not what we're taught about the gospel. When I see a sister in the Lord uh, who is taught to trust Christ, to follow him, and I see all kinds of anxiety about like living in a certain lifestyle, having a certain kind of income level, a certain kind of career, in a way that I feel like, man, that is, is I, I'm, I'm picking up idolatry here, uh, I could say, hey, don't worry so much about those things. I could say, like, hey, you know, your priorities are messed up. But what I want to say is I want to say, my sister, uh, Christ calls us to trust him, to value him above all things. And the, the anxiety that I see in you about maintaining this kind of lifestyle, maintaining this kind of income, this career, this status, I feel like that is, I mean, you're putting some things. You may be putting some things. I don't know. You tell me. But I feel like you're putting some things uh, ahead of Christ in terms of his lordship, in terms of his importance in your life, right? Do you see how I'm, I'm trying to get at the gospel disconnect there? I'm trying to get at how the, the problem really is a failure to believe the gospel in some kind of way. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't. There's, there's all kinds of unwise choices people make. And I'm okay pointing out unwise choices, right? Like if somebody's making an unwise decision in finances, if somebody's uh, not abiding by the law in a way that I feel like is going to have some immediate consequences in their life, if somebody is doing something that I feel like is unwise, I think it's perfectly legitimate. That's why we have Proverbs to point out, look, that's, unwi that's an unwise choice. I think it's a bad decision, maybe a sinful decision. I hope it's not a pattern, but that's an unwise choice. But if I'm trying to get at a sinful pattern in somebody's life, if I'm trying to change that, if I'm going for heart change, what I want to do is I want to focus on the gospel. I want to focus on helping them see how this thing in their life really is a, a failure uh, to connect what they're doing to gospel truth, like Paul does with Peter. Um, so what we see is, uh, is we're going to uh, want to do this in a spirit of humility, watching ourselves and also keeping the gospel in mind. Uh, as we wrap this up, uh, I just want to point out something that I think Paul's situation kind of leads us to consider. When do we do this publicly? Right? Like that's, uh, it, I think most of the time it's going to be in private. It should be private conversation because I think people would tend to bow up and, and feel personally offended if this is a kind of a public thing. What situations do we confront somebody in sin publicly in front of everybody? Uh, I actually think Paul's situation here provides a, a really good guideline for us. Uh, what the situation Paul is describing is a situation where a leader uh, in the church is sinning publicly 
and that sin is leading people astray. All right, so Peter is sinning. He's acting hypocritically, inconsistent with the gospel. And it says that when the other Jews saw this, they started to follow Peter. And so that even Barnabas was led astray by that hypocrisy, right? So Peter is sinning. He's a leader. He's sinning publicly, and it's leading other people astray. I think that is probably fair game, right? Like if something, if some sin needs to be called out publicly, maybe there's a conversation that needs to be had privately. But if ever a sin needed to be called out publicly, it's the kind that is committed by a leader in public leading people astray. Uh, so it depends on whether the sin's public. It depends on whether that person is public in their profile. It depends, on whether, it depends on whether that person is leading other people astray publicly. Other than that, I think there needs to be, uh, these probably need to be private conversations, one-on-one. So let's get to some specific application here. Um, I am not telling you right now after this service to go up to somebody you've wanted to talk to in a while and point out sin in that person's life. Matter of fact, let's just call a 24-hour moratorium on personal confrontation, right? I just, just pray about it, right? Like, let it sit. Maybe don't, don't go up right after the service. Maybe not at dinner tonight, right? Family's still in town. Not the time, right? So let's, let's call a 24-hour, like, hiatus on, on, the, on the direct confrontation. But something I do want you to commit to, I want you to think about, pray about, and just commit to, right? We have this thing in, in the church called fight clubs. Uh, something that I'm involved in, my wife is involved in, we've been involved in for four and a half years now since we became members of the church. Uh, those are our institutionalized kind of groups, uh, opportunities to get in one another's life and to help one another fight sin. Uh, it has recently come to my attention that we have a lot of people in the church who are, who are in community groups, who have been around for a long time, but they're not involved in any kind of fight club. I want to probe into that a little bit, right? Like I, I want to I poke at why not? Right, like, and, and here, let me flip, let me flip the, the, the uh, let me flip the kind of motivation for this real quick. Maybe you're not in a fight club because you feel like, well, I feel like I don't really have any vices that need to be kind of pointed out. Like, I don't, I'm pretty good at kind of seeing those things. I'm pretty good at kind of self-discipline and, 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 uh, and making sure that I, you know, I'm aware of the ways I fall short. I, I kind of fix the things that are broken. And that, one, I think you're probably deluded a little bit. I think you're, you, you are self-deceived and you don't see your own sin. But let's just disregard that for a second. Maybe you legit think you don't need it. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about why we confront because it is the way that we tangibly love one another as Christ is commanded to us. You may not feel like you need it, but there are other people in the church that you are denying that opportunity to. Right? Like you, may be at, you may see insight in their lives. Right? If you just got to know them, if you got close with them, and you're, giving them, you're robbing them of an opportunity to say, my brother, my sister, I love you. Here's some things that we can work on together. Let's do that together. It's not because of you. It's because of them. Right? Like this is a way that you can love your brothers and sisters in the Lord by getting in a fight club and saying, I will commit to loving you this way. Right? And that's what I've done with the, the guys in my group. Right? Like I have a, a group of guys that we have committed to one another to say, you, 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 you got fair game to say that this is inconsistent. Right? Like the way you're talking about your spouse, the way you're talking about your kids, the way, the way you're describing how you're treating your kids, the way you're thinking about work, the way you're thinking about other kinds of sins in your life, like lust and, and uh, all of those other kinds of things. You have fair game to come into my life and do that. And that is an act of love for them to do that for me, right? To say that to me. I don't resent that. And I don't think I'm above that, right? Like they need, I need that. And you need to provide that for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what should your motivation be? Your motivation could be like, hey, what I get out of this deal of fight clubs. 
But I, I would love for it to be, here's what I contribute to fight clubs. I'd love for it to be, this is why I, I go, because I want to bear one another's burdens like I'm supposed to. I want to restore my brothers and sisters. I want them to, I want them to see the ways that they could love Christ better. right? And so uh, that is the way that we can do this uh, with one another. I want us to commit to that. I want, us, I want you to think carefully about getting into a fight club, committing to a group of men or women that you will walk with faithfully, that you will love them enough uh, to confront them when they need to be confronted. And you will be open and transparent with them enough to say, say it, speak into my life. Tell me, right? Like, tell me this is what I, I need, right? How I can believe the gospel more, how I can live this out more fruitfully, fruitfully in my life. Uh, and I think if we're doing that, um, we're going to be the kind of church that Paul is describing here in Galatians 1 and 2. Uh, let's pray together and move toward a time of communion. God, I'm so grateful that you give us the body of Christ. Uh, I'm blind. I'm blind to the ways that uh, I'm blind to the ways that I fall so short of uh, of perfection in this area. Uh, I'm selfish. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm full of mistakes, and I I, uh, I gloss over my own sin and my own life. And uh, there are all kinds of ways that I live inconsistently with what I say that I value. And I'm thankful for the men in my life. I'm thankful for the guys that have committed to me. Uh, to speak truth to me in love in a way that is uh, meek and gentle uh, and yet uh, confident that they'll, uh, that they'll watch themselves lest they also be tempted and they will uh, keep the gospel uh, center of those conversations. I pray that we could do that with one another. Uh, you don't just redeem us to walk with you and try to figure this thing out alone. You've given us your word and you've given us the body of Christ. So we want to encourage one another in this way. I pray that in this time, people would, would have conversations about, man, this sounds good. I want to commit to a fight club. I want to be in that kind of situation where the women in my life or the men in my life uh, can confront me, that I can confront them, and we can walk more faithfully with God as a result. And so, Lord, I commit that to you, and I'm so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for the way that I've been sanctified. My wife and my family have been sanctified through it, through those conversations. And I pray that that would continue throughout our church. And we lift that up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.